The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you to turn this morning in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We'll be looking this morning at verses 12 through 17 as we continue our, our study through these letters from the Lord to the seven churches in Asia Minor. John writes in verse 12, And to the angel in the church at Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might not eat foods, excuse me, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also... You have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word. It, it enriches us. It inspires us. It challenges us. It teaches us. And this morning, as we continue in this study of letters to the churches, we're reminded that you are a great and mighty Savior, but you are a Savior who inspects your churches, a Savior who pays attention to what happens in the local body, a Savior who takes notice of our words and our deeds. And so, Lord, as we turn our attention to the church at Pergamum this morning, we continue to reflect upon our own self and our own congregation. In the back of our minds, thinking, how would you grade us in relation to the things in which you grade these churches? We pray, O oh Lord, that we would pass the grade. Where we fall short, God, we pray that you would just draw us to repentance, confession, and change. Speak to us through your word this morning, Lord. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are compelled to obey. For we pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. December 7th, 1941 is a a date that's well known in American history. On that date, uh, the Japanese launched an attack on Pearl Harbor. 130-some aircraft were sent in secret toward Hawaii. It was a well-planned and well-executed attack. It was a devastating attack that cost our our American forces uh, hundreds and hundreds, in fact, around 2,400 or so lives. We lost ships, many. We lost almost all of our aircraft that were there in Pearl Harbor. We lost a lot. All of our airfields, many of our men and women who served. What's really sad about the way that all developed on that day was uh, about 50 minutes before the attack actually commenced, there were two young men who were stationed at a remote radar site in Hawaii and who had noticed on the radar, uh, all of a sudden uh, some aircraft appeared and then all of a sudden many aircraft appeared and they, they reported it to their immediate superior, a young lieutenant who was the only officer on duty that particular day. 
who looked at the evidence on the radar and simply said, don't worry about it. It's probably just airplanes from California. Don't worry about it. 50 minutes was a lot of time. A lot of things could have happened in 50 minutes. We could have prepared the battleships for battle. We could have uh, launched aircraft into the, the sky to provide a defense. We could have gotten many of our people to safety. But because uh, a young lieutenant made the decision to say, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. It cost us dearly. When it comes to our own walk with the Lord and our own spiritual lives, there are all sorts of threats that come at us, and there are all sorts of dangers that are posed to the Christian life and the walk of the believer. Many of those things that come at us are things that come at least initially as subtle threats. And subtle threats we are often tempted to look at and say, ah, it's just a small thing. Don't worry about it. And we let it go. And ultimately that small thing turns into a big thing which ends up destroying the spiritual life altogether. I've seen that pattern play out over and over and over in the lives of believers. I've seen that pattern play out over and over and over in the lives of churches, churches that were once faithful to the gospel and once thriving places of ministry who allowed some sort of, of sin and some sort of corruption into the body. And it normally starts as something small and something subtle that people begin to notice, but when they take notice of it, they say things It's like, ah, uh, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Until all of a sudden, it is a big deal. And the destruction is vast, and it's too late. That was the kind of threat that was posed to the church at Pergamum. We're going to see, as Christ speaks to this particular church, that, that there's something going on under the surface of this church. There's a threat that's present in the life of the church. It's an isolated threat that's localized. That is to say that there's probably only a small segment of the church that is particularly and personally guilty but what we're going to find is that many in the church are very aware of what's going on. And their response thus far has been, ah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's okay. We don't need to do anything. And Christ speaks to them in very vivid language to challenge them on that response. There are some things worth worrying about in the life of a believer. There are some things worth worrying about in the life of a church. And that's what we're going to find at the church at Pergamum. The church at Pergamum, we're going to see, is a church like the church at Smyrna that we saw last week, like the church in Ephesus that we saw the week before. They exist in Asia Minor in a time when the Roman Empire is hostile toward the Christian faith. There's hostility all around them. We're going to see, just like the other churches, there's persecution on all sides. It is not fashionable. It is not uh, a good thing. It, is not, uh, it does not get you to the top of the society's ladder of success to be a Christian. And so they are facing intense persecution from every side. And they're having to deal with it like every church in that region was having to deal with it. And you know, if you could boil down the persecution to the bottom line, the real issue that these churches were having was they were standing firm on the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. They were standing firm on the truth that there is no other God except the one God that is described and disclosed himself in the Bible. The God who exists as one but, uh, but is three at the same time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one in whom who the Son came and lived among men, who, who died on a cross and shed his blood for our sins and, and has called men everywhere to, to repent of their sin and to believe upon him and to entrust their lives into him as the only way to be forgiven, as the only way to be saved, as the only way to gain entrance into eternal heaven. From front to back, that is the, the truth of the Scripture. It's not so much that these churches worship Jesus, that's the problem, is that I want you to see. This culture in which they existed was perfectly fine with them worshiping Jesus. They could worship Jesus along with everybody else worshiping every other God under the sun, and nobody would have cared. That wasn't the issue. The issue was they were saying not only do we worship Jesus, but every other God is a false God and will lead you to hell. The only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. Every other gospel is a false gospel, except the gospel of Jesus. 
It was that firm stand of the exclusivity of the gospel and the exclusivity of Christ that brought the heat from the culture. It was the very thing that infuriated Demetrius, the silversmith. We, we looked at that, I think, last week when we were talking about Smyrna back in Acts chapter 19. You hear it in his voice when he says in verse 26 uh, to the crowd at, at Ephesus, I'm sorry, two weeks ago. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many of people. What's the problem? He's saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. It's not a problem that Paul is preaching Jesus and that people should worship Jesus. The problem is he's saying Jesus is the only way and the other gods aren't gods. That's the problem. That was the problem in, in Paul's day. That was the problem in the church of Pergamum's day. And it is the problem that the church of Jesus Christ still deals with today. It is the same thing that is a threat to the church. Just like the people in John's day, we too live in an age of pluralism, religious pluralism. The idea that there's more than one valid religion and no particular religion has any right to claim exclusive truth. The, the prevailing pluralism of our culture says that really all religions have an equal claim to validity and really all of them at the end of the day are just different paths up the same mountaintop. Today when it comes to religion, to exclaim exclusivity is to be a bigot. And when you combine that with the other prevailing thing that's going on in our culture, the idea of postmodernism that has as one of its faithful tenets that there is no such thing as, as absolute truth, then you've got a real cocktail for trouble, don't you? Because Christianity declares that there is one true God, that his word is truth, that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved, and his word is, is revealed to us in the Bible, and the Bible, therefore, lays out a, a moral uh, command and demand upon the people who read it and all the people who live and it is the truth and it must be obeyed and submitted to in a culture where people don't believe there's a such thing as absolute truth that literally sets their hair on fire it's what drives a rabidly independent culture absolutely mad it did in John's day and it does in our day but the Bible is absolutely crystal clear on this issue. All the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse uh, 39, you hear the words of God himself. Know therefore today and lay, to it, lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is, say this part with me, no other. God has declared from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end that there is one God and there is no other God. He's it. He has no competition, he has no rival, he has no equal, he has no one that is like him. Isaiah 46 verse 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. None like me. You flip your pages to the New Testament and you hear Jesus himself in John 14, 6 saying this, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one no one comes to the Father except through me. Except through me. That's it. There's the only way. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, uh, Paul is preaching. He says this, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, only at the name of Jesus. That my friends, fundamentally was the problem that the church at Pergamum was facing, and that fundamentally is the problem that the church in the United States of America faces, and it's an ever-increasing problem. It's getting harder and harder and harder to be friends with the culture around us and stand firm on the exclusivity of Christ, and it's not going to get easier. It's what the church in Pergamum was dealing with. Pergamum was, uh, was just north of Smyrna. You saw the, the, uh, the map a moment ago, another 70 miles or so north, about 15 miles inland. It wasn't a port city. It was an inland city. It was a, a major intellectual city. It was a major uh, political city. It was a major religious center. It was a major medical center. They had also there another massive library, over 200,000 uh, scrolls in this particular library was well known for that. Uh, but again, similar to Smyrna, you've got this, this sort of mixture of pagan religion, and you've got temples to all these false gods, Athena, Dionysus, Asclepios, 
and then you've got this massive, in, in uh, Pergamum particularly, it's, it's up on a sort of a slope, some 1,300 miles up, uh, 1,300 uh, uh, miles above sort of the plain below. You've got <clears throat> this massive, uh, 1,300 feet, not miles, sorry, that would be in outer space. Um, it's not in outer space. Pergamum was not in outter space. Trust me, it was not. It's feet, um, not miles. But about 1,300 feet up is a massive, a massive uh, altar to Zeus that uh, from a distance looked a bit like a throne. And so you've got all this pagan worship going on there, just like you have in the rest of the region. You've also got here the imperial cult, the worship of the emperor that is raging. Uh, Pergamum was the, the, the first city to get permission to be able to erect an altar in a temple to a living uh, emperor, Augustus. Thought so highly of himself, he didn't even think he needed to die to have a temple. And so they built one in Pergamum for him. And, and the worship of the emperor, you have to understand, was, was linked with sort of civic duty and patriotism. You weren't a patriot if you didn't participate. And so it had cultural implications to abstain. And therefore the Christians were accused of being superstitious and of hating the human race because they didn't participate in such things. And then so mixed with the pagan religion and the emperor worship, you've got the Jewish community right there who hates the Christians as well, and they are stirring this whole pot up. And so from all three sides, the Christians at Pergamum are struggling and they're suffering. And it's into this and to this church that Christ speaks. And like the others, he introduces himself at the very beginning with a description pulled from chapter 1. He says, the words of him, uh, excuse me, the verse 12 uh, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. You may, if, you, if you're on the same page, or if you have to flip back a page to chapter 1, verse 16, he was described there as the one who in his right hand held the seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. It's a weird symbol, right, of, of, of Christ with a, literally a sword shooting out of his mouth, and you're trying to imagine what in the world is, is this. I mean, clearly... We're not talking about something literal here. Literally, Christ does not open his mouth and have a metal sword launch. That would be like some sci-fi movie that wouldn't even be worth watching, right? What is this about? Well, the sword in ancient Rome was a symbol of Roman justice and Roman might. It's a, it's a symbol of might and justice and judgment and execution, if you will. And when it comes to Christ, that is the image of Christ that's being presented here. When Christ is presented as the one who has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, he's, he's presented as the one who is the judge who has come to make war against his enemies. The one who's come in judgment, coming with words that simply speak, and those words are like a, a sword. They, they cut and they execute. Christ only has to speak, and it's done. It's done. The judgment is over. If you'd flip over a few pages to Revelation 19, you'd find in verse 15 and 21 the same imagery of Christ as we're getting this sort of vivid description of the second coming of Christ. You'll, you'll see the same language applied to Christ in verse 15. We'll just use that as an example. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. Christ comes. And he doesn't have to wield a physical sword. All he has to do is say the word. Say the word, and it's done. It's no fight. It's no battle. He doesn't, he doesn't break a sweat. He just speaks, and it's over. So the image of Christ with the sword out of his mouth is this image of Christ, the judge, the one of all power who comes in might and who comes in power and who comes to judge and to execute justice in the world. His words of judgment, when he speaks, it's done. And it's a reminder to this church that, listen, at the end of the day, it's not the emperor that you need to worry about, it's Christ. The emperor isn't the worst, the worst threat on the horizon for you. The worst threat on the horizon for you is Christ who comes to judge. And you think about those words, that's a pretty frightening thing to say to a church, right? To say to a church, your biggest threat isn't the emperor. Your biggest threat is Jesus Christ who comes to judge. Judgment begins with the body of Christ. We see that throughout the text, Scripture. 
So Christ is the final judge, not the emperor. He speaks and it's done, and that's who's coming to, to give their, their evaluation or their performance review, if you will. And Christ says some things to them, like he does in some of the other churches, some words of commendation. He, he says some kind things. There are some things that are going well in Pergamum. He identifies a couple of things. He says right at the very, very beginning, he notes where they're dwelling. He says they, they dwell. Did you notice where they dwell or where they're living? He describes it as a place where Satan's throne is. And he says again later, where Satan dwells. How would you like to have that for your hometown? Where do you live? Well, I live where Satan dwells. I live in Satan's hometown, where he has his throne. A throne just sort of represents this idea of special authority and, and, and royal governance, if you will. The one who sits on the throne has highest authority, and the one who sits on the throne has the right to, to govern and rule. And Pergamum is described as a city where that's Satan. He's the one who has authority, and he's the one who's ruling the joint, if you will. Um, now, if you were to read commentators, they're all over the board on, on what the backdrop of this is. Some argue that it, that, that altar of Zeus literally looks like a throne, and so it could be drawn from that. Uh, one of the more interesting sort of backdrops is this temple to Asclepios, this god we haven't talked about so far, this god who is no god at all. Um, he was a god, a fake god, a demon, posing as a god who was supposed to be the god of, of healing, uh, who was known for healing. And if you were to go to the temple of Asclepios, you'd have exciting worship. You think worship is dull? You think worship is kind of boring these days in the American church? You ought to get in a time machine and go back to, to Asclepios, to that temple. He, his, he was known as the, the god symbolized by the serpent, so they had serpents, snakes, all over the place in the temple. And the idea was that you were to go there, and as part of your worship, you would enter into these rooms where the snakes are running around, and you were to, to lay down and pray, and if one of the snakes were to touch you, you were to be healed. Would you go to that church? Are you looking for some excitement in worship? Get some snakes rolling around on the floor and tell people to, I mean, you'd have to be satanically, like, controlled to think that's a great idea, right? I mean, snakes are horrid. Who would want to do that? I'd just be sick. I'll be sick. That's fine. I don't need to go lay with the snakes. I'll be sick and die. I'm not laying around with snakes. But that's what they did in the temple to Asclepios. They, was, they believed this, this foolish doctrine that if you were sick, you could go lay down and this God would work through this serpent and, and heal you somehow. Oddly enough, the, the, symbolic, uh, the, the symbolic serpent of Asclepios still sort of that, from the, the roots back to that worship, it really has passed all the way down to to our day today in some medical symbolisms where you see a snake uh, sort of intertwined around different things and sort of medical imagery. It goes back to this healing cult of Asclepios and the serpent healing back there. We don't know exactly what the backdrop of, of all this Satan's throne and Satan's hometown thing is. What we can d deduce from it that, that is very clear is that it is. In some particular way, Satan had a unique reign in this city. It was his hometown. In some particular acute way, his activity was very real in Pergamon. The, the thing that makes the most sense to me is like if you were to think about our culture and I were to tell you, uh, you know, next weekend we're going to Sin City, where would you think I was going? You'd think I was going to Las Vegas, right? Why is that? Why is Las Vegas called Sin City? Well, it's got that name because it's a city particularly known for the sin that's rampant there and accessible to people. So I would suspect that perhaps that's sort of the same idea of Pergamum. It's that kind of a place. It's that kind of a place where sin is rampant and where it's unbridled and where Satan's activity is uniquely on display. How would you like to be the church in that town? That's these dear folks at Pergamum. Satan is very real. His activity is acute. And it is in that context that this church exists. And in the middle of all that, this church that exists in Satan's hometown with all this persecution coming around them, the Lord says, there's something you've done right. You are to be commended for this. He says, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. This church in the midst of all of this is holding fast to Jesus. They're not racing off after all of these other gods. They're not, they're not denying Christ. Even though the persecution is hot, they're not trying to run and escape the, the, the persecution. They're staying put in the city, and they're continuing to share Jesus, even in this particularly satanic city. 
They're holding fast to Christ. The persecution is not, it's not loosening their grip on him at all. They haven't wavered in their faith. They haven't wavered in their commitment at all. And to give you a sense for how remarkable that really is, he reminds them of the days of Antipas. We don't know much about Antipas, but we do know this. He was a member of the church at Pergamum. We don't have a record in the Bible of Antipas or what happened to him. History tells us that he was, he was martyred for, for his faith, for standing up for Jesus, for holding fast to Christ. In Pergamum, he was literally killed for his faith, maybe like Polycarp that we studied last week. Again, the scriptures don't record the details of his death, but later tradition tells us that he was roasted to death in a, a brazen bowl. Not one of the bucket list ways to go if you got to pick. But here Jesus calls him a faithful witness. By the way, that's the same name Jesus identifies himself with. It's a pretty high call, a pretty high commendation for Antipas. But it's a remarkable church. The persecution on this church is incredible. Not only that, but one of the members of the church has been killed openly in the city already. And this church is holding fast. Think about that for a moment. You think about imagining the persecution in Charleston rising to the level that one of the people in this room that you know that you worship with is literally killed in public for his faith in Christ or her faith in Christ. Would there be a temptation to pull back? Would there be a temptation to hide? Would there be a temptation to sort of loosen your grip on the exclusivity of, exclusivity of Christ? You bet there would be. But this church held fast to Jesus. Even though they lost somebody in their church, they didn't soften their stance one bit. They didn't huddle within the walls of their church and pretend like they were just huddled down trying to hold on till Jesus comes. They kept doing the work of Christ in the city in spite of all that they had faced. They held fast. This was a courageous church. It was a resilient church. A resilient church. It's a remarkable church. But in spite of all that is good, Christ has a complaint with this church. And you might say, how could the Lord complain against a church who's staying faithful in the face of martyrdom? That's a pretty high bar, but he does. He says, I have a few things against you. Did you notice that? A few things against you. And he identifies two things. He says, there are some, there are some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Who hold the teaching of Balaam. And he's going to mention a little bit later some who follow after the teachings of the Nicolaitans. You may remember that because we talked about them and when we talked about the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus was, was well known for resisting the influence of the Nicolaitans. They had sniffed out this, these, these subversive people who had come into the church at Ephesus and, and were, were, were teaching this false doctrine. And the leaders and the congregation of that church had sniffed them out, had identified them, and had, had dealt with them swiftly. They had dealt with that. The church at Pergamum was tolerating it. They were tolerating it. It's the difference here. Although they were remaining faithful in the face of persecution, they were tolerating a heretical sect that was influencing and infiltrating the church. They're tolerating it, and they're allowing it to grow. Now, we don't have time to go back to Numbers chapter 22 through 25 and talk about who Balaam was and all that. I'll give you just sort of a quick overview of that. It's good homework for you later to go back and read Numbers 22 through 25, and you can see all that's going on in those days and who Balaam is. But he, bottom line is he was a prophet for hire in the Old Testament. The king of Moab, a man by the name of Balak, wanted to deal with the Israelites who were larger in number than him, and he realized that he couldn't defeat them. So he goes and hires Balaam, this false prophet, to, to utter a curse on the Israelites. And he believes that if they can be cursed, then somehow he could then defeat them. And so he hires Balaam, this, this prophet for profit, if you will. And he pays him to go and, and, and utter a curse on the Israelites. Well, God intervenes and he speaks to this, this false prophet and he shuts him down and he stops him multiple times. It doesn't allow him to go through with his plan. And if you want to go back and read, there's some interesting stuff. In, in chapter 22 of Numbers, God even uses a talking donkey to shut this down. That's fascinating. If you like the Shrek movie, um, you'll, you'll identify with that in Numbers 22. 
Um, but at the end of the day, Balaam isn't successful. He's not able to, to, to follow through on what he's paid for. But apparently what happens is something along the lines of this. Before Balaam leaves the scene, he advises Balak on how he might possibly accomplish what he wants to accomplish a different way. And it probably went something like this. Balak, here's what you need to do. These people, they've been wandering around out in the desert for a very long time. And you've got some awfully beautiful ladies here in Moab. Your best bet is to leverage these beautiful ladies in Moab. Moab. Create opportunities for them to interact with the men of Israel. Teach them how to entice the Israelite men. And before you know it, they're going to interact. And there's going to be sexual activity. And the next thing you know, there's going to be all sorts of corrosion of their faith. The women will influence them towards syncretism. Now that's a big theological word that you really don't need to know unless you're on jeopardy at some point. It just simply means it's the idea of blending non-Christian religious ideas and practices with Christianity. The idea that you can maintain your, your faith in the one true living God and blend it with the worship of other things and other gods. And, and that's exactly what ends up playing out in the days of Israel in dealing with Moab. The, the, the Moabite women do exactly that, and the Israelite men do exactly that. And you can see how this happens. Uh, they, they give into temptation to lust after the Moabite women, and the next thing you know, there's sexual immorality with them, and the next thing you know, they're keeping some of them as wives. And the next thing you know after that, the wives are leading them to these false god temples, and they're going along with their wife to worship at the pagan temple, and they're probably saying something to themselves along the lines of, well, I don't have to believe all this stuff. I'm just going to go along with her to keep her happy, right? And the next thing you know, people who are committed to the one true living God are now worshiping in a temple of idols. And their faith is utterly and completely compromised. God dealt with them in that day swiftly. He judged them. 24,000 Israelites were slaughtered in a moment by the Lord because of this problem. And so the teaching of Balaam that we're talking about in Pergamum, it roots back to that. And it's some sort of a syncretism, some sort of a compromise with the culture. And in Pergamum, it was the same sort of a temptation, this temptation toward sexual immorality and this temptation toward eating foods that were sacrificed to idols. Probably the, sort, the sexual immorality that was associated with the worship in the temples around them, probably eating the, the kinds of foods sacrificed to idols at public festivals that were celebrating these fake gods that they were participating in. And there were people within the church who were saying, listen, these, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. This is not a big deal. You can, you can love Christ and you can be faithful to Christ and you can, you can live with a little immorality in your life. Don't worry about it. You can be faithful to Christ and you can still go to the, to the festival, to the god Asclepios, and you can eat the food that's been offered as a sacrifice there. Just part of your public duty. Just don't worry about it. No big deal. And that's what's going on in Pergamum. There are some people who hold to that teaching. There are some people who are doing it. And there's a broader group within the church who's tolerating it. And Christ is upset with all of them. With all of them. Uh, just as a side note, the teaching of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, I believe, is the same group of people, the same sort of an error. So what does this mean to us? I mean, we don't have any, we're not dealing with Balaam. I, you didn't know who Balaam was probably unless you just read it that recently in your Bible study or something. And Balak and Moab and all of this. What, what is, how does this apply here in our day, in 2021 in Charleston, South Carolina? Well, my mind goes back to John chapter 17 and to Jesus' high priestly prayer. You may recall Jesus praying to the Father, and he's talking about his people. And he talks about in that prayer, he says, you know, these are, these are my people. They're, they're my people. They belong to me. They're not of this world. The world hates them just like the world hates me. My people are not of this world. But, but he says to the Father, I, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but just to, just to protect them from the evil one. And in this prayer comes this image of the body of Christ being people who belong to Jesus, who really are citizens of the kingdom of God, in a real sense, not of this world, but are left here to live in this world. 
and have to balance the, the reality of living in a pagan world but not being of it. What does that mean and what does that look like for people like us today? We believed in Christ, we're born again into his kingdom, yet we live and we work and we play in the context of the world. Well, we're not called to, to gather up into a holy huddle and to hide in the church and to just pretend like the world around us doesn't exist. And in fact, the, the New Testament calls us to the exact opposite. We're called over and over to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We're told to let our light so shine that they might see your good works. You can't let your light shine and then see your good works unless you're out in the world, right? You can't do that huddled up together with people who are just like you and me. In fact, the very thing Jesus was criticized for in Luke chapter 15, he was criticized by the Pharisees. They grumbled and said, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Jesus was a man who was in the world. He was around sinners. He, he knew what it was like to live in the world, to live around people who didn't know him and who didn't believe and to interact with them. He was able to do that in such a way that he was in the world. But yet, as believers, we're called not to be of the world. We're called not to be people who allow the, the, the world's unbiblical influences and sinful behaviors to influence us. We're, we're called to be people who don't compromise in the area of doctrine and holiness with the world around us. We are to influence the world with truth and holiness. We're not to allow it to influence us. And so as we walk as, as believers in the world, but not of the world, there's a constant temptation for us to be drawn into the things of the world. There's a constant temptation for us to be drawn into situations where we are willing to compromise our beliefs or compromise our behavior because it has a positive influence in some way, shape, or form. Quite often, these days, there's very little difference between what you see in the church and what you see in the world. Christians so absorbed in the world's philosophies and values that there's almost no distinction between them and the world. D.L. Moody said this. He said, Christians should live in the world, but not be filled with it. A ship lives in the water, but if the water gets into the ship, she goes to the bottom. So Christians may live in the world, but if the world gets into them, they sink. They sink. And I think that's the thing that we, that we there's a challenge for us, isn't it? We live in a pagan world. For the most part, not persecuted like the lady we saw in the video this morning, for sure. But there is persecution that's ramping up. It's coming. And there is a constant pressure from the culture around us to be willing to compromise our beliefs in order to please the world. There's a constant pressure. Why don't you people just ease up on this exclusivity of Jesus thing? Can't you just ease up on that a little bit? Can't you just open your minds up that there may be other ways for people be okay? Can't you just ease up on, on all these biblical definitions of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and what it means to be married? I mean, I know your, I know your Bible speaks to those things and has clear definitions, but, but can't, you just, can't you just ease up on that stuff? You know, the, you got to get in. You got to get with the system, man. People don't believe that anymore. Can't you just ease up on, on this, this hard stand you've taken on the sanctity of human life? The idea that, that, that life begins at conception and every human life is breathed by God and created by God with value and purpose and none should be aborted in the womb? Can't you just ease up on that stuff? You'll you fit in a lot better if you can just loosen up on some of these beliefs that you hold. We don't care if you worship Jesus. We don't care if you talk about hope and joy and peace and grace and all those things, but can't you, just, can't you just compromise on some of those things? Can't you just say we won't worry about those? And all around us, in the modern evangelical world even, people are saying, yep, we sure can. No problem. We got it. We want you to like us. You see this very vividly right now we've got this week uh, hearings starting for uh, someone who's been proposed to sit on the Supreme Court and you've probably already heard and seen if you've been paying attention to the news that that this particular lady is a has a professed Catholic a professed Christian who believes biblical values and has already been assaulted for that and you'll hear more of it this week and there's going to be tremendous pressure on her to compromise her beliefs in order to be 
in order to be confirmed to the Supreme Court. There's going to be a little voice in the back of her mind saying, why don't you just downplay your faith? Why don't you just say you're okay with abortion? Just hide your faith. After all, the ends justify the means, right? You need to get on the court. Just, just ease up on that stuff so, so people won't make a big deal about it. There's constant pressure on believers to just compromise our beliefs. And there's constant pressure on believers to compromise our behavior as well. There's, con there's constant pressure on teenagers and on single people. Listen, you don't really need to save yourself from marriage. You don't really need to uh, go with this biblical sexuality view. The culture around you, nobody believes that stuff anymore. I mean, God's going to forgive you. Don't worry about it. Just, just get along. Everybody else is going out with the group from the office. They're all going to get sloshed or drunk. I know that the word of God forbids that drunkenness as a sin, but just don't worry about it. Just, just go along. You'll fit in. People will like you. See, it's all syncretism. That's all, that's all this belief that I can worship God and say that I believe him and that I am living in holiness under his word, but then at another point in my life or another day of my week, I can just sort of blend in a whole other set of beliefs and behaviors, and it's all okay. It's not okay. It wasn't okay for the church at Pergamum, and it's not okay today. And so Jesus has no tolerance for this at all. He has no tolerance in our lives for it, and he has no tolerance in our churches for it. And the church was tolerating this. This was going on in the life of the church at Pergamum. People were doing this. And other people were saying, ah, it's no big deal, no worries. And Christ is having none of it. And he issues a serious warning. He says to them, listen, repent or I'll come to you. Repent or I will come to you, he says. And I'll war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's a, that's a stern warning, Jesus says. Listen, church, you better wake up and you better get this right. I will not tolerate a church that compromises with the world. I will not tolerate a church that's syncretistic. He says, I'll come, and I'll come with the sword of my mouth to execute judgment. I'll come to be at war with you. You never want to be the church that Christ is coming with that attitude because it's no battle at all. He wins. This whole church is called to repentance. The people who practice the things that he's talking about and those who stood by and tolerated it without stopping it, they too are part of the call to repentance. And the call to this church is the church at Pergamum. Listen, you've been faithful and you've stood strong in the face of persecution, even in the face of martyrdom, but there's a bigger threat that's under the surface in the church and you better stand strong against that too. You need a little Ephesus in you without losing your love. He says, I'll come make war with the sword of my mouth. That is a strong, strong warning. Then in verse 17, he says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll give, you, give him some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him the white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, I know you're all sitting there wondering right now what to make of all that, right? What is this hidden manna and white stone and new name? And you're waiting for some, some remarkable wisdom for me to unravel those mysteries for you right this very moment. And I'm going to go ahead up front and tell you you're going to be disappointed just prepare yourselves for disappointment in regard to this. Um, that's another bit of homework that you can do for yourself. If you want to do some research on what the hidden manna and the white stone and the new name are, you can, you can read commentaries until you're, you're blue in the face. And uh, if you read 12 of them, you'll get 18 different options for these things. Um, it's very difficult because of history that separates us from the time in which this was written. Some of this imagery has been sort of lost in the, in the mix, if you will, over time. It's just hard to, to sort of sort back and not pin down. You can bank on the fact that everybody at Pergamum knew exactly what these symbols were and exactly what they meant. It's a little harder for us to dive back. And I'll just sort of give you my thoughts on it um, and what that means real quickly here at the end. He talks about hidden manna. Probably you could just write in your notes Exodus chapter 16. 
can go back and look. Back in Exodus chapter 16, you may remember God was providing miraculous food for his people as they wandered in the wilderness. It came in the form of manna, this bread that fell from heaven. And one of the things that they were instructed by God to do was to gather up some of this manna and put it in a jar and to stick that jar in the Ark of the Covenant. And it was to stay there in the Ark of the Covenant and it was to be preserved there, hidden within the ark, if you will. Well, the Ark of the Covenant has long ago been lost at this point, but in Israelite tradition, they believed that at the second coming, the, the Messiah was going to come back, and the ark was going to be revealed and brought out, and that hidden manna was going to be brought out from within that ark. And so this, this idea of hidden manna has to do with the, coming of the second coming of the Messiah and the blessing that he brings when he comes. I think the best understanding of this is Jesus being the likely fulfillment of this hidden manna. John chapter 6, verse 32 and following, you may remember Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, What? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Uh, I, I believe what he's talking about here is Jesus. Jesus is the hidden manna. That Christ is the, uh, that at the second coming, he is the fulfillment of every blessing and every promise that is forecast in the Old Testament for believers as a reward. And Christ himself comes as that hidden manna and the blessing. He's the one who will come and provide eternal nourishment to his people who provide for their every single need. Those who overcome, those who stand firm in the face of persecution and who stand firm in the face of temptation and compromise will receive Christ. Then he says they'll get these white stones with names written on them. Boy, there's a bunch of ideas of what this is. White stones were used in all sorts of contexts back in John's day. Everything from victory for an athlete, they were given a stone, they were used as tickets to entry in special events. How would you like that to carry around a bunch of stones in your pocket to show up at the Performing Arts Center? I'm here for the opera, here's my stone. Uh, it's got my name on it. Uh, I don't think that would go too well today, would it? Um, but that's part of it. Freedom for a slave, a verdict from a jury, and sometimes in a jury trial, if somebody was guilty, they'd throw out a black stone. If they, were, if they were not guilty, it'd be a white stone. I think the best guess of what, what's being talked about here is something along the lines of the first two. When an athlete would, would, would win in victory in, in his competition, they'd give him these stones. They gave them sort of entrance into a special event in their honor, in their name. It had their name on the stone. And so the idea is probably something along the lines of that. Those who overcome, those who, who stand like the church at Pergamon was being called to stand and they're faithful to the end will receive a, a ticket, if you will, a stone with their name written on it, a, an entryway into the marriage feast at the end of time when Christ comes and celebrates the victory that he's achieved for his people. The new name, uh, the backdrop there, Isaiah 62.2, this prophecy of a new name, no idea really beyond that what it means except to know this. If you had this idea of heaven as being some place where you're just an anonymous face in the crowd, then you're probably wrong about your view of heaven. It won't be like that. In some sense, you're going to have a new name. I guess that means if you don't like the one you have, then just hang on a bit. Can't get a better one. But regardless of what that is or how that comes about or what the meaning of all that is, you can know this. You have a Savior who knows you personally. You're not just a face in the crowd to him. He said that when he was living and walking and speaking and doing ministry, didn't he? He said, my sheep know my voice. I know my sheep. I know their names. Christ knows who belongs to him. And his intimacy with us is, is, is personal, and it's true, and it's real, and it's true now, and it's true when we get to heaven. In some sense, there's a personal relationship with Christ. He will know you, and a new name will be given, and that relationship will be real and clear and personal, and he will care for you and love you individually. There's something beautiful about that, isn't it? Don't imagine that you're just somebody in the crowd in the back of heaven, anonymous to Christ. He knows you, and he loves you, and he cares about you, and he'll love you all the way to the end. And when you meet him face to face he will know you he'll know you and he'll name you so what does all this mean well 
I think it causes us to stop and reflect, doesn't it? It causes us to stop and ask the question, in what ways are we tempted to compromise? In what ways are we tempted to, to, to sort of say, don't worry about it, to behaviors in our life that we know run contrary to the Word of God? In what ways are we tempted to say, eh, don't worry about it? We start to sort of absorb the belief systems of the world around us and allow the world to dictate our doctrine. In what ways are, are those thoughts and beliefs sort of filtering into our lives in small ways? And we may not be giving in wholesale to some other belief system, but we're allowing little bits of it into our mind and we're beginning to meditate on it and embrace it in small, simple ways. And that temptation to compromise, to get along, to compromise, to get ahead, to compromise, to be accepted, to compromise, to be liked. Christ would say to you, if that's happening in your life, even in small ways, don't you dare look in the mirror and say, don't worry about it. You need to worry about it. And you need to deal with it. And the way to deal with it is to repent. It's to turn to the one who is the bread from heaven and to confess that sin, to lay at his feet and to ask him to strengthen you, to be like these people in Pergamum who stand firm against the temptations and who stand firm against the persecution I'd ask him to give you a little bit of what was going on at Ephesus, the ability to act quickly and radically against anything that would be a compromise in your life. Because you never know when a small compromise will one day be a big deal that destroys everything that you've built up in your testimony for Christ. You can read the news and you can see the stories of believer after believer over time, many who were well-known public figures who fall from grace in some horrible way. And it never just happened. It always began with some small compromise somewhere where they just said, don't worry about it. Until one day they were so far away from Christ they didn't even know how they got there. Don't let that be you. That's the message to the church at Pergamum. And that's the message to our church as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the challenge that you've given us via this church at Pergamum. We, are, we stand in awe of these believers, Lord, who could stand firm and, and, and keep preaching the gospel and keep going out into their sinful, satanic city and taking the truth, even, even after one of their very own friends had been killed. They didn't recoil in fear. They didn't hide from the world. They didn't stop what you had called them to do. They kept after it, and they held firmly to you. Lord, help us to be that kind of church that isn't afraid, that doesn't live and stand in fear of anybody or anything, but holds fast to you, Christ Jesus. But as we do that, Lord, we, we, we pray that you would help us examine our own hearts, that in our holding fast and in our standing firm, that we're not allowing compromise to happen in our beliefs and in our behaviors, that we're not allowing the world to begin to affect us rather than us influence the world, that we're not just saying don't worry about it to little compromises here and there. Lord, in these moments, bring to our attention ways that we might be doing that individually and even corporately. And draw us, Lord Jesus, to repentance that we might pass your evaluation and be a blessing to you and the world around us. Help us, we pray, for Christ's sake.